Last Sunday, at the beginning of the sermon, Pastor David gave the opening illustration, and he preached about how people often perceive those who are better looking as more trustworthy. If you were here, remember that. I went away for one Sunday, and that's what was preached from this pulpit. People who are better looking are more trustworthy. Well, maybe if you were here, you saw Pastor Chuck then shoved him out of the way. I think the point was, he's better looking so we can trust him. However... He then preached on a text that showed that the least physically attractive of the group, young David, had the brightest future in God's kingdom. That was the point of the sermon. Well, that's good news, Pastor Chuck, because that means you have a bright future in God's kingdom. Got him back. You received that word? Good. We come now to the story of David and Goliath. It's one of the most famous stories in all of history. Almost everybody knows the story, whether you're from the Judeo-Christian background or not. And usually the story is told with some kind of ethic. It's some kind of moral of the story. And to the non-religious people, it's usually along the lines of, you should always root for the underdog. And within religious circles, we go to Bible studies, we read books, we hear sermons preached even sometimes, and the ethic of the story, the moral of the story for us is we can have courage to face our giants. It's usually how it goes. We, the Bible study leader reads the text and closes the Bible and looks around the room and says, what's your Goliath? And then we pray for each other and we pray for courage to face our giants. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning with some humility that both of those ethics, both of those morals of the story are wrong, and they actually totally miss the point. How can I speak so boldly and confidently in knowing that those are wrong readings of the story? It's not about rooting for the underdog. The point of the story is not for me to have courage to face my giants. I can speak so boldly about it because the point of the story, the point of David slaying Goliath is stated right here in the text. Verses 46 and 47, David says that he has killed Goliath. I'm going to put it right here on the wall. You don't need to turn to this right now. He says this in verse 46, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and the battle is the Lord's. That's the point of the story. David didn't kill Goliath so that we can root for the underdog or so that we can have courage to face our giants. Those might be nice takeaways, but they're not the main point of the story. The main point, why David killed Goliath, why David slayed the enemy in this way, is so that all the earth may know that there is a God and that the battle is the Lord's. I want to keep this on the wall the entire sermon so that we don't lose our way wandering off into these morals of the story, thinking it's all about us, because it's not all about us and our giants or our courage or our underdog status. It's all about God. And I want us to know from this story that there is a God and that the battle is the Lord's. This is easy to forget. It's easy to forget. It's easy to forget when we read the Bible. It's easy to forget when we go about our day. It's especially easy to forget In a day and an age when the enemy seems all-powerful, sometimes the enemy appears to be all 
powerful. And that's actually exactly what was happening. That's the scene that David stumbles upon when he comes to the battle lines. The people of Israel, they had forgotten this basic truth that there is a God and that the battle is the Lord's. The armies of Israel had forgotten this and the enemy appeared to be totally in control. They were totally afraid. Let's pick up the story in verses 23 and 24 to see how this was playing out for the army of Israel. It says this, as David talked with his brothers, behold, the champion The Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. The same words as before. Those come from verse 10. We didn't read that. We tried to shorten the reading a little bit today. And in the earlier in the chapter, thank you, Carol, you did great. In verse 10, Goliath comes out day after day and he defies the ranks of Israel. That's what he's doing. And it says in the text that he's done this for 40 days. Now, whenever you see 40 days in the biblical record, it basically means the fullness of time. This had been going on way too long. He came out for 40 days, day after day, defying the ranks of Israel. Picking up again in verse 23, but David heard him. Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. These men had been receiving for 40 days the verbal attacks of the enemy. And they were terrified. David comes on to the scene and he actually receives the same attack. Did you see that at the end of verse 23? David heard him this time. David responds completely differently than all the other people who had been hearing this verbal attack of the enemy for 40 days. Why did David respond so differently? He received the same attack. Very simply, David remembered one thing that they all had forgotten. David remembered, wait a minute, there is a God. And this battle against the enemy is his. Everybody else had forgotten this. They thought the battle was all up to them. And when they saw the size and the terror of the enemy, they shivered in their boots. David comes along with fresh ears, and he remembers this truth. David remembers that our God is bigger than anything or anyone that would come against him. That's all that David remembered. There is a God. And David takes us in the story to the place where he discovered this truth. He takes us out into the wilderness. He takes us out to his flock of sheep. Let's pick up the story now in verse 34, to hear where and how David learned, David got it reaffirmed, this truth that there is a God and the battle is the Lord's. Verse 34 says this, David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. When there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. That is the coolest verse in the whole Bible. (laughs) The little boy in me. What'd you do, David, when you saw a lion? I grabbed him by the beard and punched him in the face. (laughs) We have to move on. I just think that's so cool. I went after him, struck him, and delivered him out of his mouth. If he rose against me, I caught him by his beard, struck him, and killed him. Verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, 
for he has defied the armies of the living God. Now, we could read these verses and think, ah, yes, out there in the wilderness with his sheep, young shepherd David, that's where he learned courage. That's where he got the skill to fight lions and bears. We need courage and we need skill like David to face our giants. Let's just think about this for one second. If, if we are in a Bible study and we say, what's your Goliath? What are you facing? And maybe people say, the biggest challenge in my life right now is, is parenting or the biggest challenge in my life is, is my marriage. Let's just take this to its end conclusion. What if you applied the courage and skill and tactics of David to your marriage or to your children? Please don't do that. <laughs> this will not go well for your spouse or your children. So we could read this and think, ah, yes, that's where David learned skill, and that's what I need to learn to face my giants, but that's not what David is saying. Look again, look more closely, verse 37, at David's description of what happened out there in the wilderness. David said, the Lord delivered me. You see, it's not all about his skill and his courage and his underdog status. Verse verse 37 says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. What David discovered out there in the wilderness as he's caring for those vulnerable little sheep is that there is a God. There's a God of the sheep. There's a God of the flock. David knew that there is a God. He discovered this out there in the wilderness. We were talking on Thursday morning about this text with the men's Bible study that meets in the back room of the diner on Putnam on Greenwich Avenue. And one of the guys was just picturing young David, the shepherd, out there in the wilderness. And he was remembering some of the psalms that David would write about the night sky. And we were all together around the table picturing young David out there in the wilderness with no light pollution out there, just gazing up into the heavens and writing psalms like Psalm 19 that says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim His handiwork. David wrote that, probably lying on his back, looking up at the night sky. What David saw out there in the wilderness was the glory, was the bigness of God. Can you think about how big our God is just by gazing up into the night sky with young shepherd boy David? So when a lion or a bear came upon the scene, David knew the bigness of the God of the bear. And when he came to the ranks of Israel and he saw what they were so terrified about, a nine-foot giant, David had a much larger perspective of the bigness of God. He could think about the size of the universe that God created. And these guys were shaking in their boots about a nine-foot giant. David came upon the scene and he said, there is a God much bigger than this, much bigger than the enemy who would come against him. Another guy at the Men's Bible study was thinking about all of that and the bigness of God, the biggest of David's God and our God. And, and the guy at the Bible study said this wonderful phrase. I looked it up on the internet, but I couldn't find the source, but I'm going to say it anyway. He said, don't tell God how big your mountain is. Tell your mountain how big your God is. 
when he said that, I said, ooh, that would preach. I'm going to say that on Sunday. That is so good. Don't tell God how big your mountain is. Tell your mountain how big your God is. That's what David does when he arrives on the battle front. Everyone's shaking and quivering in their boots because of the verbal attack of the enemy, but David has this perspective of the bigness of God. He knows it's not up to us. This battle against the enemy is not our battle. The battle is the Lord's, and he is big enough to conquer the enemy. That's what David remembered. So David responds completely differently to the challenges before them, and so can we. We so often forget this, and we so often, therefore, rely on human strength. One of the things that's exposed for us in this story is that human strength is completely incapable of defeating the enemy. I think that's why the detail is included of Saul putting the armor onto David, just to show us that human strength and human tools are incapable of fighting a battle that's not ours, a battle that is the Lord's. Let's just read about that in verse 38. It's kind of fun to read. Verse 38 says, Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go. Can you picture him walking? We know David's shorter. We know Saul is tall. He's wearing armor that's far too big for him, trying to walk around in it, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I can't go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Verse 38 says, Saul clothed him with a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. If you read earlier in the story, you realize that he's putting things on to David that Goliath was wearing a helmet of bronze, and a coat of mail. I think there's a lesson in this for us. If we try to use the tools, if we try to use the tactics of the enemy, it's absurd. It doesn't work, right? This is a good lesson for us in our culture, I think. When it seems like the enemy is having control over our society, control over our culture, it would be as silly for us to use the tactics of the enemy as it was for David to wear Saul's armor. We don't need to use the tactics of the enemy. What are the tactics of the enemy? Lying, control, coercion, fear. Christians, we don't need to use those tactics. It's silly. It's absurd. It's like putting on this armor. We do all these things. Why? I know why we do those things, because we're afraid. We're afraid of the power of the enemy. I had an experience somewhat recently. We were hiking up in Alaska with Nancy and with the children, with Nancy's parents. And if you ever go hiking in in Alaska, you get a a nice lesson from the local Alaskans about bears. If any of you have been to Alaska, you know you don't just go out on the trail. They stop you. They tell you the difference between a black bear and a brown bear. They tell you to ring a bear bell so that as you're hiking, the bear will hear it and not want to come devour you. And so we got this... (laughs) We got this whole lesson before we went hiking, and um, my daughter, Eva, who already makes lots of noise, as it is, she thought it would be fun to ring the bear bell. So we're hiking along the mountain path, and she's ringing this bear bell. And Nancy can tell you, I I just thought it was so annoying. So I said, Eva, just put the bear bell away. So she put the bear bell away, and oh, it was quiet. We could enjoy nature. Well, we kept hiking along, and suddenly Riley came upon something in the path. 
and it was bear scat. Fresh bear scat. <laughs> Which, if you're not catching on, indicates that there was a bear on that path quite recently. <laughs> and suddenly something happened in all of our hearts. Fear came upon us. So I said, Eva, get that bell back out. <laughs> And Nancy encouraged Eva to sing some of her favorite show tunes. So she was singing <laughs> top of her lungs. We were all singing. Nancy's father, my father-in-law, the West Point Army football coach, was singing as we walked down the path. Riley was calling out chants. I say no, you say bear, no, bear, no, bear. If somebody had been watching us and didn't know about the whole bear phenomenon, they would have thought we are insane people right out of the asylum. Why were we doing that? Why were we acting so absurdly? We were afraid. We were afraid. Just like the people out there on the battle line, just like Saul, I find it very interesting. At the end of verse 37, Saul hears David's little speech about how God will deliver him. And Saul says, go and the Lord be with you. And then Saul still puts the armor on David. We so often do this. We believe there's a God, we say, the battle is the Lord's, and then we still try to employ our human tactics or even the tactics of the enemy. We say, Lord, I know you're in control of this situation, but let me just grab control of it too. See? Let me just put on this silly armor. Let me just scream and holler and ring a bell down the path. The reality is, on the path, if a bear really was hungry and needed to eat us, it wasn't going to be scared away by Eva's show tunes. It was absurd what we were doing. We also needed to pray to the God of the bears. We have a God. And the battle against the enemy is his. That's the point of the story. I just want to read these verses once again because they're so good. We can't miss them. Verses 45 through 47. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I find this interesting. It's the battle is the Lord's, but God also still employs us in the battle that is his. It's not that David had to just sit back and let the Lord do the fighting in his grace and in his desire to be in relationship with us, he does put us in the battle, but we should never mistake that for thinking the battle's ours. The battle is the Lord's, remember. So he sends David out there, not with sword and spear, but in the name of the Lord with a sling and a stone. And he keeps taunting Goliath, I'll give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that all the earth may know. And one day, this word about the God of the armies of Israel would travel all around the world, even to a place called Connecticut someday. This promise comes true that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. And then just in case we've missed the point, I love this in verse 50. It's almost like a cinematic moment, like the camera zooming in nice and slow on a detail. It says, 
there was no sword in the hand of David. Look closely. Look in. Look at his hand. This is why I wanted us to see the, the sculpture from Michelangelo in the close detail. What's in his hand? No sword. He didn't need a sword. He didn't need the tactics of the enemy in his hand. He needed the name of the Lord, of the God of, of the armies of Israel, and a sling and a stone. You know, one way of correctly reading the story of David and Goliath is to ask ourselves in an honest way, who are we in the story? When I was a kid, we used to have family movie night, and the movie would get done, and my dad would turn to us kids, and he would say, who did you relate to in the story? And I would think about who I related to in the story. It was an interesting way of watching movies as a family. I noticed that so often when we read the Bible, we, we think, who am I in the story? And it's just kind of interesting to me that we can read David and Goliath and think, well, I'm obviously David, and I need to face my giants. I'm the center of the story, clearly. I'm the anointed king of a nation. Why do we do that? We think it's all about we're the center of the story all the time. But in all honesty, if I'm really thinking clearly about who I would be if I was there that day, I am much more likely shaking in my boots with the army of Israel. Have you seen the size of this guy and what he's saying? I can so easily forget that I have a God and that the battle is the Lord's. It's not just that we need to be like David and have his courage, but more importantly, the good news is that we have a David, actually. We have a better David. We have someone who went and fought the enemy on our behalf. David is a precursor to Christ. And just as David went and did representative warfare for the nation of Israel and defeated the army, defeated the enemy, we have a representative warrior for us. We have Jesus who went and did for us something we cannot do for ourselves. He went and took on the enemy of our souls, the one who attacks us day after day, the one who seems to be in control. Jesus says, I'll be your representative. And Jesus went to the cross for us. He did what we couldn't do on our own. And he defeated the enemy through death and through resurrection. This is good news. We don't need to hold a sword in our hand. We don't need to put on the silly, absurd tactics of the enemy in our human strength because we have a deliverer. The battle is the Lord's and he has won it for us already. There's freedom in that. I don't know what giants you're facing. I know there's challenges all throughout this body. But the good news is that the biggest challenge any of us will ever face is from the enemy of our souls who wants death and destruction and hell for us. But there is a God. And that battle is His, and He has delivered us. Amen.